This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. A person's death is maybe one of the most traumatic things that a friend or loved one has to deal with. But as many uh, other parts of our lives have developed in the last several decades, believe it or not, so has death as well. And it is developed on a variety of different levels, from the medical to cultural through religious means and several others as well. Dr. Heider Reich is a fellow in cardiology at Duke University Medical Center, and he has researched this for his new book, Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life. And Dr. Verreich joins us right now. Heider, great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Dan. Thank you. All the best. Uh, what is it that really drove you to really research this the death in the first place? You know, Dan, as a physician, you know, I think what really drove me to write this book was that, you know, I would find myself in situations all the time in which, you know, I was talking to patients and their loved ones about very, very serious uh, things related to the end of life and, you know, what kind of care they would want uh, in those types of critical situations. And what really struck me was, you know, a couple of different things. One was how little people knew about just how we passed in these days. I I felt like so much of what, you know, so much of the assumptions that people came in with were drawn from, you know, either popular culture or from depictions of, you know, how people used to pass away in old times. And what I felt was that, you know, it was like they were in this new landscape and they were completely lost. And I wanted to, you know, draw out a map for people such as them and, you know, all those, all everyone who has to either experience some type of disease or who has to take care of an elderly uh, parent or loved one. Yeah. Um, who is close to the end of life. So I wrote it for, for those people, as well as for myself, because, you know, as a physician, I had gotten very good at the logistics of, um, you know, what to do when people pass away. But there were many greater questions that I just didn't have the answers to. One of the topics that you you bring up, uh, and there's so many pieces to this, we'll kind of go through a, a good many of them. But you, you talk about how uh, death, as you think about it, is in many cases prolonged. Uh, compared to what we knew back in colonial times and even, you know, the the days of the Wild West. I mean, it it is obviously a much different idea in terms of the medical ability we have to prolong life than we did, you know, 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's really because that's really one of the collaterals of the great advances in medical science that we have seen. So, you know, if you look at surveys from, say, the city of Boston from the 1800s, or from London during that time, you know, people died mostly of three things, injuries, um, infections, or some type of nutritional uh, deficiencies. And really, death was a very sort of binary event, and it was very sudden. So, for example, you know, before the advent of medical technology, you know, if someone had a heart attack or if someone had some type of abnormal heart rhythm, um, such as, you know, ventricular tachycardia, they would almost certainly mostly die in many cases instantaneously, sometimes even in their sleep. But now with new technologies, what happens is that we are able to help people through those sort of potentially fatal episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens is that, you know, uh, now people live longer, but with more chronic diseases. Um, 
and and so and and what happens now is that you know especially closer to the end of life many patients have multiple chronic diseases that we can you know, at best manage, but we can't cure them. And they're in and out of the hospitals. In some ways, you know, dying has become this phase of our life instead of being just an instantaneous sort of um, uh, flash event. One of the people you actually bring up is Dick Cheney mm-hmm. uh, as an example, obviously with the heart issues that he had, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the last uh, several years. I think Cheney's history was is I think the most dramatic example of the advances in medical science we have seen. So for example, so you know I start the example, so I start that story by talking about Warren Harding, who was um, you know president and who's depicted uh, uh, in uh, the recent show HBO Boardwalk Empire, who had heart failure and basically died in a hotel room and there was no physician close to him right. and it was almost instantaneous. But if you look at Cheney, Cheney had multiple heart attacks. Yeah. He then had a bypass surgery. Surgery. Then he got a pacemaker. Then he even got a mechanical heart, an LVAD. Um, and then lastly, ended up getting a heart transplant. So, you know, in essence, you know, if Cheney had lived maybe a few decades ago, he could have very likely died from, you know, one of the four heart attacks that he had uh, during his very young life. Um, and yet he's alive to this date with the help of medical science. Having said that, you know, I think most people do not have the same type of resources or um, right. are able to care for themselves in that way. So many patients are not able to do as well as, you know, he has done, fortunately. But, so then is that a change that we need to consider uh, in terms of the structure of how we provide medical care so that more people do have the ability to have that as an option? Well, absolutely. You know, I think uh, more and more the idea um, that, you know, the goal for medicine is changing from, you know, taking care of these acute episodes to more population health, more chronic disease management, uh, because that is really the thing that we're dealing with. If you look at the top 10 uh, causes of death in amongst the American um, adults, eight of them are chronic diseases. So we need to be doing a better job of not only taking care of patients with chronic diseases, but also changing our payment plans and payment um, yeah. sort of algorithms. And that's something that uh, that has been under a lot of focus. Dr. Heidevereich joining us, uh, author of the book Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life. You're more than welcome to join in with comments or questions. The number to do so is 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. If you'd like to join in or if you can't get your phone, you can... Uh, easily send us a comment via Twitter at bizradio111, B-I-Z radio111, or my Twitter account, which is at danloney21. But one of the interesting things also is obviously we have, as you said, so much more technology and and and, and options to be able to help uh, extend life. Uh, but you also have the, the, the back and forth in terms of people not wanting to extend their life and that kind of back and forth with the family members who may want to have that person's life extended. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think the, the the desire to extend life is, you know, probably one of our greatest strengths as a species. You know, you want uh, any organism to protect their life uh, and to extend it for as long as possible so that, you know, they can have an evolutionary advantage over other competitors. Uh, and that's, you know, wired into our DNA, so to speak. You know, having said that, you know, a lot of patients, you know, they reach a certain point in which they personally may feel like, you know, more may not be what they want. And by more, I mean more procedures, more time in the intensive care unit, more CPR, more, you know, mechanical ventilation and so on and so forth. So that is why, you know, even though we've had these, you know, great medical advances, you find many patients who at some point will say, you know, 
no more, I am done. Um, at the same time, you know, family members may not be on the same page, right. um, obviously, because, you know, they have a different perspective, you know, they have, they love, you know, they have a loved one that they want, and they want them to be around. And they feel like, you know, they don't want them to, quote, unquote, give up, and they want to be their source of strength um, at that time. And, but, and also, importantly, they don't want to have the guilt of feeling like, you know, they denied their loved one, um, or talked their loved one out of doing something which could have potentially um, prolonged their life. So all of these, you know, things um, end up sort of making a very, very complicated uh, situation for patients, family members, loved ones, and 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 it affects how they interact with their medical teams. You you grew up in Pakistan, and I, I, I'd be interested to get your perspective on what death was like for you in that country growing up. And I say that because, obviously, the, the experiences of people that live in other parts of the world are, are very different from what we may very well know here in the United States. Sure. So, you know, coming from Pakistan to the United States was, in, as far as the end of life is concerned, was like stepping into a time machine. You know, in some ways, you know, how people die in Pakistan is very similar to how people used to die here in the United States and other developed countries, you know, before we had, uh, you know, so many advanced technologies available. Death was very instantaneous. Um, you know, people, it was very mysterious. People didn't know what people passed away from. Uh, and most people had passed away at home. So, you know, as an example, you know, I remember, you know, my, my grandmother, uh, when she passed away, um, uh, you know, she she was, you know, having a meal with family. She started having some pain in her chest. She was, you know, her son, uh, my uncle, carried her in his arms to the hospital. And, you know, she died very quickly, within minutes. And the most interesting thing about that, you know, tragedy was that that was the first time she'd ever been in a hospital. And uh, and that is not something that's unique for her. Um, so you know, so having seen that, you know, I had I had this different perspective. And so when I came to the U.S., I knew about I knew all about medicine. I knew if you know if you had an infection, what right. type of antibiotic to use. I knew if you had a heart attack, what I needed to do. But when it came to the end of life, I felt that this was something that I had just never seen. And which is why, and I think that's one of the reasons why my curiosity was driven to this extent to, you know, to forcing me almost to write this book. I, I mentioned the cultural element to it, and I'd like to get your perspective on how culture kind of influences and maybe partly from, from what you experienced, as you said, growing up. Sure. And, you know, death is one of, death is a very sort of, con uh, as a human experience, you know, it's, um, it's very high yield and very high density as far as, you know, cultural uh, trappings is concerned. You know, even if you look at the origin of spirituality, the origin of religion, you know, it's always centered around death and, you know, represented by burials and, you know, other practices that have happened around that. Um, you know, but I think one of the things that's happened is uh, that even though, you know, we've had this move of death from our communities and homes to the hospitals and nursing homes, so, you know, just uh, for uh, listeners, um, four out of five people these days, um, Americans die in either a hospital or a nursing home. Yeah. So, you know, over the yeah. past century, we've had this big change. You know, we had people dying at home, and now most of them die in the hospital. And many times it's the right thing to do because, you know, you want uh, patients to be getting medical care when, you know, um, they're close to death. But what has what hasn't happened is that, all the culture and all the customs and rituals that existed around death in the community were not transferred. So in some ways, you know, even though the act of death was transferred, everything else surrounding it, you know, the connection with the community, the, you know, the customs that take place 
were sort of left behind, and which is why I think so many people feel, um, you know, so isolated at the end of life. Well, I guess to a degree, uh, and Dr. Heider-Vereich is joining us, his book, Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Part of this is obviously people want to see their family members live longer, uh, which is why they may be in a nursing home or, or, or some facility like that. Uh, I, I hate to say it this way, but part of it is also with the fact that so many more people these days are having to deal with sick family members uh, that having them in these facilities does take some of the burden away from that younger person, whether that be the son, the daughter, uh, a sister, a brother, whoever that may be. Of course. And again, you know, and those those young, that younger person now, the caregiver for, is actually not that young anymore. The average yeah. age of the caregiver is now in the 50s. So the people taking care of, you know, elderly parents themselves are not young and strapping. They have their own medical problems. And, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, being a caregiver for a patient is actually um, increases your risk for having sort of bad health outcomes. It's, it's a lot of work. And what's happened also is that because of uh, reducing of uh, sort of lowering fertility rates, the number of people who can help out has also gone down. Right. So, you know, in some, in some ways, you know, and, and because, you know, now, you know, most people work, you know, both, you know, females and males. So what that does is that it does, uh, what it's led to now is this epidemic of uh, caregiver burden across our society, which, uh, and caregiving is now becoming something that's as ubiquitous as being a parent as, as a social role. Uh, but the pro- but the problem also is that as you kind of allude to is is the fact that we have a, a structure of our medical community right now where uh, there and obviously it's been well publicized in the in the last few years where there are instances where people are not getting you would think that they should be getting the best care in a facility like that and they are not getting to getting it and, and that's a big issue that unfortunately is just kind of you know it's kicking the can down the road that not enough has been addressed to try and alleviate that problem. And, and if you look at, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, especially, you know, in medicine, especially in hospitals and clinics, there has been a lot of emphasis on improving quality. I mean, we were all about, you know, um, we, we used to judge the quality of medical care, but, you know, how much was done. And but increasingly, you know, there's been a focus on looking at the actual outcomes. But that type of uh, that focus has not been extended to the same extent to rehab facilities and nursing homes. So even though you've had, you know, you've had improvements in outcomes and there has been a lot of emphasis, especially in hospitals with regards to how good they are at de- uh, delivering care, how good they are at preventing patients from being readmitted to the hospital. Yeah. But that same type of emphasis and that same type of incisive analysis has not been uh, performed for um, uh, nursing homes and rehab facilities. So I think that there is a lot more that needs to be done uh, to not only improve the care and outcomes that they receive, but also just to understand what the scope of care delivered there is. You also talk about the fact that there's even the, the debate over what qualifies as dead. Uh, you know, I mean, there is brain dead and, and there, you know, I mean, it's it, it's a question that that in many minds ends up being the kind of the tipping point as to whether or not to to actually stop a person's life or if they're already dead. 
sure. And and you know that's one of the things that's um, that's occurred you know uh, over the past you know few decades. You know I, I feel like you know if many people would think you know that you know given that we have all this new knowledge we would be able to um, you know be very very clear and make very clear distinctions between you know who is alive and who is dead. But the 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 what's happened is that now we have all these um, life support. Um, apparatuses that can support, you know, one or, you know, a couple of organs at a time, like we can do dialysis for kidneys, breathing machines for lungs, you know, VADs, which are pumps for the heart. But we really don't have anything like that for the brain. And which is why when patients are critically ill, sometimes, you know, they can have uh, support apparatuses keeping them breathing, keeping their hearts beating, but their brain may not actually be functioning. And it's one of those cases that, you know, the more you know, the more you realize that, you know, things may not be as clear cut as we would have previously imagined. Having said that, you know, I want to make sure that our uh, listeners know that as far as brain death is concerned, the criteria for brain death are very consistent, they're very good, and there has never been a documented case in which someone who was brain dead had some type of reversal or meaningful recovery, um, especially when that diagnosis is made in a formal way. Um, But having said that, I think more people need to be involved in this very, very basic and human discussion about what is, in fact, life. Is life just the just the fact that, you know, our organs are beating or our cells are dividing? Or is it um, the loss of personhood that occurs in so many disease states? And I think that's a discussion not for just physicians, but for society as a whole. But it, it does feel like the the process of, of the decision and, and going through it is a much harder process now than it was, say, even five years ago. Oh, it's it's definitely much harder. And again, it's one of those things. The more you know, the more you realize things are complicated, even as far as brain death is concerned. Yeah. You know, most patients do not have the amount of brain damage that they can reach the criteria for brain death. Most of them, most patients, in fact, have, uh, you know, sort of extensive damage to the extent that they can be um, classified as patients in sort of vegetative comas. And so even though um, they do not meet the criteria for brain death, they they are not well enough to have any type of um, you know, reasonable brain function. So um, I think it is one of those things that, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because, you know, I, I realized that, you know, modern death is very, very complicated as, an, as a topic and, and as an issue. But the more we shield it from readers, the more we, and, and from, you know, from, from just everyday people, the mm-hmm. more we make it a much harder terrain to navigate. And which makes these situations so much more difficult. And that's one of that's perhaps the main, main reason and the main hope from this book is that people will read this. And when they enter those rooms or they enter those situations in which they have to make these decisions, they feel armed with information, uh, at least. You know, it won't make the situation any better. Knowing right. what's going on may at, at least help them come to a decision that they feel um, is something that they have thought out well enough. Well, I, I was going to ask you whether or not uh, that, uh, because you, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of that statement is the more you know. And, and it makes it makes me wonder whether or not people actually want to know this and, and whether it's something that, you know, I mean, you go along for so much of your life and you, you don't think about death. And then obviously you are just thrust into this, you know, in, in, in maybe a unique situation or, you know, towards the end of your life. 
and we don't consider it for so long, and it almost feels a little abnormal to want to understand it. Sure. And if you look at many cultures, especially, you know, so many, you know, Southeast Asian cultures or uh, even even my culture back in Pakistan, you've, most people would not want to know. Most people would rather, even if they have a, you know, terminal diagnosis, they would tell the doctor, you know, don't tell me, just tell my family. And the families will say, don't tell the patient. But, you know, I think what's happening now, especially in the United States and other developed countries, is that people do want to know. And one way to know is by looking at the success of people such as Atul Gawande, um, you know, who have written about this before. Uh, and um, you know other sort of books related to this. People want to be armed with information. People don't want to just defer to their physicians. They want to work with their physicians. They want to consult with their physicians. They appreciate their input, but they don't want to be blindsided because these things have very very real consequences for their daily lives. So many so many people now are you know taking care of elderly parents who could fall sick at any given moment and w- when that happens the burden of decision making falls right on you out of the out of nowhere. You you also bring up uh, uh, the impact that social media is playing here uh, and the fact that and it, it's a common thing now that if you have somebody that you are friends with that has passed away or you know somebody of your family member that there is some sort of post on Facebook or you know Instagram or whatever it may be and I I would guess to a degree it helps the grieving process because it includes more people in the understanding of what you're going through and and, you know the 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 level of response that you get. Mm Dan, I mean, one of the things about uh, one of the most uh, features of modern death is that it's a very, very isolating procedure, uh, sorry, process. Um, You know, people are not at home. They're in hospitals. As we get get older, we lose many of our friends and family. Um, And so what social media does for those who use it, especially close to the end of life, is that it allows them, A, an outlet to sort of just express what they feel. Because, you know, sometimes even in a hospital, even though you're surrounded by nursing staff and physicians, you can feel very alone Um, you know but also it helps people connect with you know loved ones or those who have a similar experience who may not be able to visit who may be far away and I think it I think it's one of the one of the things that's understudied but I think it's I think in some ways that can do more for improving a patient's state of mind and and, you know any amount of medications or drugs or procedures uh, that we can throw at them so I do think that that's something that I think we need to focus on and physicians need to focus on um, and to provide patients outlets so that they can express themselves and hopefully uh, sort of add to their experience. What do you think are the uh, are the next pieces to this puzzle that will help make this a, an even easier process to deal with? I think the biggest barrier to uh, why this is such a huge issue is that the fear of death is so prevalent in our society. And in some ways, the fact that death is so much more mysterious, we don't understand it, we don't see it because, you know, it doesn't happen in our communities. It, and how death is uh, depicted on, you know, in TV or others or pop culture is so not realistic. Mm-hmm. People, I think, fear death more today than they have at any other point. Not only do they fear death, they also fear what it takes to die because it involves so many different procedures, surgeries, etc., that they are very, very fearful of. Right. And I think that's the thing that we need to conquer. And I hope that, you know, by that, that's one of the things that this book is able to do is that, you know, it just gets people talking about death in a way that doesn't, you know, send a chill down their spine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but, and that's, but that's ambitious, you know, because I think the fear of death, again, is something that's so hardwired. And it's something that's used uh, so discriminately by, you know, religious leaders, politicians, you know. How about everyone. Hollywood? 
How about Hollywood? Exactly. Right. So you can you can you can get whatever you know. I mean, if you look at uh, you can push anyone to uh, anyone's decision making um, and uh, from you know type one to type two type of thinking. Yeah. Uh, just by sort of provoking the fear of mortality in them. Hi, right, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's a, a very uh, interesting book. Thank you again. Thanks, Dan. You got it. Dr. Heider Verreich of Duke University Medical Center. The book is Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life. It's available in bookstores uh, and online. Just came out uh, about a week ago. Uh, And great to have him on the show. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.